0: Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Hey, Baha'i Blogcast listeners. I am here with Dr. Derek Smith. Can I call you Dr.? No, nah, you just call me Derek, that would be better. You have a doctorate. <laughs> yes, you are. Yeah, yeah. See, he's too modest to even own that he's Dr. Derek Smith, but I will uh I will just refer to you as Derek Smith. Um, you're a professor at Claremont McKenna, is that right? That's right. And um what do you what do you teach over there?
1: Well, my area is primarily African American cultural text, so anything from poetry to film to music to novels. I mostly focus on representations of blackness in uh, literary texts, but then I kind of <laughs> extend beyond to other kind of cultural texts, everything, you know, including, you know, cinematography and so forth.
0: Oh, so your course of study, when, when you say texts, that could be a, that could be a film, it could be a TV exactly, show. Right. You could kind of, it's almost like a
1: kind of modern, like critical theory. Exactly, right, right. So for example, like right now, I'm teaching two sections of a course on representations of blackness in hollywood cinema so oh. so that's uh that's one of my favorite courses to teach i've been teaching that for a while uh and then another one that i'm doing is on african-american autobiography so as you
0: said cultural text cultural theory coming into all elements of uh, the study basically well before we get into some of your writings and your areas of study which are um just fantastic! I've read some of your some of your stuff, some of your critical essays. Um, really, really exciting, cutting edge stuff. Bring us up to speed. What's your? Tell us about your background and how you got to be here. Did you grow up Baha'i?
1: Yeah, I did. My parents were um, both. They became Baha'is in the early 1970s. They were both in uh, grad school at University of Michigan. And they met there, and shortly after I was born, um, and they were really, and still are, uh, very committed Baha'is. So soon after I was born, they moved to the Virgin Islands where where I grew up. So I grew up on St. John in, uh, in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And, um, you know, I grew up sort of in a small, very small Baha'i community in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. um, but really involved in sort of what you might think of as the pioneers kind of life, you know, like we used to travel to islands here and there all the time. And, you know, just all the, the, the center of uh, my parents' world was always sort of service to the faith and stuff. So I grew up, you know, really ensconced in all of that.
0: Yeah. Can you give us more, some specific examples of Growing up a, a pioneer kid, we have that in common, so mm-hmm. I was a pioneer kid too. Oh, I not know. Only uh, in Nicaragua uh, wow. for about three years, but I came back when I was about five, so uh, what, when did you come back to the States? Uh, I came back to go to college, so when I was 18. Oh, okay, so you... You really like a uh, U.S. Virgin Islands kind of...
1: Yeah, man, that's where I'm from, really, you know. That I could talk like this, never, <laughs> but just when I come to the States, I
0: don't talk like, you know, I'm from the islands, you know. <laughs> that's fantastic. But do you have any uh, cool stories of going to, like, small islands and teaching the faith out there? Sure, like, uh, we would go to support Baha'i communities that were,
1: let's say, like a boat ride away, you know. We would get in a small boat... And go from St. John over to this island that was actually a British, part of the British Virgin Islands called Yost Van Dyke. And Yost Van Dyke was even smaller than St. John, which only had probably like 3,000 people on it when I was growing up. Mm. And we would go there and there would be no electricity. You know, they didn't have any electricity over there. And so we would take this kind of, you know, this little dinghy like boat over there. And then we would sort of walk around the island, probably, you know, a couple hundred people maybe lived on that island. And so we'd kind of like look for... The Bahais that were over there, you know, and try and share, you know, prayers and activities and so forth. Uh, so that was the kind of thing that we did quite regularly. And then also, then maybe like trap, like on, in the summertime, like we would go to summer schools in like the different islands. So I would, you know, I went to Barbuda and Antigua and stuff like that for summer school. You know, it was it was a it was a uh, a very sort of exciting and kind of like I don't know open kind of Bahai experience in that. There were many different small communities that were sort of in network with one another, but then operating sort of in their own little sort of sphere because of the separation of the ocean, you know, hmm. and then we would sort of travel, you know, from time to time. Hmm.
0: And uh, we we're having this conversation just a couple of weeks after the devastation in the, in the Bahamas. Uh, did that hit the U.S. Virgin Islands at all or not so much?
1: The most recent hurricane? Yeah,
0: Dorian. Uh, no, that was just uh, a sort of a tropical
1: storm when it came through uh, the Virgin Islands. Before, uh, about I think this is about two years ago. Now we got hit pretty hard. Um, with was a, it Matthew? Uh, yeah. I don't think it was Matthew. It was a it was a woman. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Those names are crazy yeah, yeah. to keep track of. Yeah, and when yeah. I was growing up, we had you know pretty memorable ones that I can remember. But uh, you know, it's, it's almost like a cyclical kind of. I don't know, destruction and then sort of rebuilding. And then, you know, uh, you hope that the destruction doesn't return so quickly. You know, it seems to be happening more and more frequently. I I don't know. It's hard for me to sort of really uh, estimate that. But I mean, you know, it just seems as though that cycle of destruction and then rebuilding and so forth, that's part of the Caribbean sort of experience. But that um, it's
0: been happening more frequently, yeah. You know, in recent years, yeah, with increasing devastation. Um, so was that a culture shock for you to go from St. John's to to college? where did you go to University of Michigan, M- Michigan? Yeah. So you go from St. John's to Ann Arbor. Did that mess with your head at all? Was that what was that like?
1: Well, I mean, I was really fortunate in that I went with my best friend Sanga. Uh, we went up there together. You know, so we kind of had one another, and then another a friend of ours came up afterwards. So we had our little kind of. I don't know, crew, little connection. Um, and I had also been to Michigan. I had also been up to the states to Michigan, you know, a few times in the summer and stayed with my father's uh, family up there. So I was, you know, I was familiar with sort of stateside culture, but uh, I was really excited to to leave the little sort of island, you know, and come up to the U.S. And that was a desire that I always had. You know, I was so
0: excited to sort of come into the real world, so to speak. That's Mm -hmm. what, that's what I felt like. Was that a culture shock going from that Baha'i community to the Ann Arbor Baha'i community?
1: Hmm. Uh, a little bit, you know, because I, I mean, I think it was, it was kind of cool for me because I got to, um, you know, I got to interact with, there were more people my age, you know, like Mm -hmm. that was one of the things that growing up in such a small kind of context, the Bahai community was relatively uh, small, so there weren't. I didn't really have so many peers, Bahai peers, growing up, you know. And so I got to um, experience a little bit more of that when I was in college, you know. So that was uh, that was a, a benefit to being there. But I was have you know I had a good time in college, you know. I, I wasn't sort of super uh, involved in all kinds of activities, but I was you know I was always there. I would you know I would try to go to feast, and I was part of the Bahai club and and so forth. So I have good friends. Uh, who, who I met, you know, in college in yeah. the high context.
0: Yeah, right on. And then you went and did a youth year of service in the, in the Holy Land after that.
1: That's right. And um, after my f- first year in um, college, I went over to Haifa, and um, I was there for one year. I met my wife, Narmin there, um, and I worked in the cleaning and maintenance office. Mm-hmm. So that was a real formative period in my life in terms of my relationship with faith. I spent a lot of time by myself when I was over there, like reading a lot. Ah. And so I would do my work and then come back to my little flat. And, uh, you know, I read a lot. What what were you reading there? I read things like, you know, the Akhtas, the Qatabi God Passes By, uh, Tablets of Baha'u'llah, Tablets of Abdul Baha. I, I, I sort of really... Immersed myself in the writings for myself because, as I was growing up, it was more like this was my parents' thing, right. and I sort of you know I knew a lot you know from having been around activities and having um been to children's classes and so forth, but that's where I kind of i had the intellectual capacity at that time to really delve into the writings for myself, yeah, and so I read a lot and tried to um come to a fuller understanding of this thing that I was involved in and I was like devoting my whole year to. (laughs) Uh So it made sense to, to my mind to try and get a a better grasp of it.
0: Yeah. I, I've spoken many times before about having a similar experience when I had left the Baha'i faith for a long time, at least 10 years. And as I was coming back, what an incredible rush it was for me to dive into those books and read them. And I started with the Dawnbreakers and uh, and dove into all the the major texts because when you grow up a Baha'i youth, it's like oh, it's the religion of your parents, and there's kind of eye rolling and like and you know it's good for you, but you don't really undertake it. So that individual investigation of truth, of kind of doing the deep dive for yourself when you have a greater maturity is, I think, seminal in the experience of every Baha'i youth. And I think a lot of Baha'i youth do themselves a big disservice by not taking that journey. I'm not saying leaving the faith journey. I'm talking about going to the, to the taking some real time to go deep into the, into the texts and find out what speaks to you. So what spoke to you
1: I think, in addition to uh, the books, obviously, sort of the foundational texts of the faith, you know, the ones that uh, provide us with Baha'u'llah's very expansive and sort of all encompassing mystical and spiritual and social engagement with sort of r- our reality, I was also very uh, moved by Shoghi Effendi's writings because I had, I think, a capacity to sort of understand the way in which the drama of history, you know, was really sort of being uh, explained by Shoghi Effendi, I think in a way that is, is quite unique in our writings, you know. So, you know, Shoghi Effendi's concepts that are laid out in things like the advent of divine justice and so forth, um, these ideas of the disintegration and integration in the forces of history that have been unfolding for the last couple hundred years, mm. those were helpful uh, to me, in in sort of understanding where I stood like in this kind of expanse of human history so I think that you know Shoghi Effendi's writings they really really spoke to me there and and then I was also like like you said the, the reading the Dawn Breakers, I was kind of like really entranced by the drama you know yeah. the sort of the dramatic representation of that history by Nabil and stuff and so forth like I was really into that and like you know you kind of Figure yourself, like, you know, who am I? Like, you know, like, how do I sort of fit into this narrative? Like, you, 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 these are heroic figures, you know? Yeah. You sort of, you would like to model yourself after some of the heroism that you see here. And here's, like, our, I don't want to call it a mythology, but here's our history. You know, that sort of, like, that great story that we can um, uh, really identify with. So I, I like that, too, particularly when I was, you know, like, a teen years, you know? like old right. Coming into my 20s
0: nice so you did that year you met your wife you went back to michigan and did that change the kind of the journey of your life
1: well surely yeah you know getting married to Narmi was that that was a, a huge sort of pivot in in my life a wonderful one and we set about you know having a family really quickly so my first son was born um in 99 and uh so that was just about a year and a half after we got married and so early on I kind of felt this sort of responsibilities of adulthood and being a father and so forth so that was kind of a very sudden sort of step into this real world if you will I didn't have that much of a I don't know sort of Adolescence, you know what I'm saying? Like Mm. I felt like you know, like I had a lot of responsibility pretty quickly, Um, and so that was kind of why I sort of immediately went from college, like into pursuing like a PhD and trying to get that as quickly as possible. And so while I was in uh, my grad program, that's where I sort of started to pursue a uh, dissertation on Robert Hayden who's one of the uh, most significant Baha'i artists in the American 20th century, as I think of, and one of the most important American poets of the 20th century. And so I started to work on his poetry, and it was through... Him that I got even a deeper understanding, I think, of like the workings of history and a Baha'i sort of conception of where we are and the spiritual sort of ramifications of being a Baha'i at this moment in history, and also being Black, you know. And so that's that's what his poetry is all about. And um, so it was kind of like he was almost like a, a, a another guide, sort yeah. of in this journey of sort of understanding my own commitments, basically. So. I, I don't know
0: a whole lot about Robert Hayden. I mean, I know the pictures of him because he's so distinctive looking with his glasses and his suits very intense and sometimes a beret and whatnot. I've read some of his poetry. It's, it's super cool. I've read and heard just a little bit that he kind of, in some ways, was almost ostracized or left out by a lot of the conversations because he wasn't political in the way that a lot of African-American poets were in the late 50s and, and 60s. But... That's all I know, so I'm an ignoramus, and for people listening, I imagine a lot of people don't know anything about Robert Hayden. Can you fill us in?
1: Sure. So you know quite a lot, I would say, uh, in terms of understanding like the general framework through which Hayden has been sort of interpreted by literary historians, right as a kind of outsider figure who is not quite in alignment with the efflorescence of let's say radical militant black aesthetics and politics of the late 1960s, early 1970s. So he was coming into his heyday as a writer at that time, and he had been sort of working very diligently sort of in honing his craft, you could say, a traditionalist style of poetry, right? Very attentive to language, a kind of uh, meticulous revisor, revising his work all the time, never satisfied, always wanted to get sort of like the precision of language uh, was paramount for him. And yet also, you know, deeply committed to these ideas of uh, human unity, right? At a time when there was a lot of chaos, sort of in American society, and there was also sort of uh, a attendant with that chaos, a kind of shift into a radical aesthetics, which really elevated sort of like black vernacular language, and wanted to sort of do away with, in some ways, sort of like the restrictions of the poetic tradition. And Hayden, being somewhat of a traditionalist, didn't really sort of mesh with these uh, sort of younger generation of this younger generation of poets who was really sort of holding the fore at that time in terms of black poetic production. And so there's always been this kind of way of looking at literary history that puts them um, sort of at odds with one another. And sort of what I tried to do in my book about Hayden is kind of like undo some of that kind of what I call like a manichaean, like, you know, kind of like completely oppositionalist framework and looking at Hayden and these militant black writers as sort of engaging in a similar project of trying to figure out what's the right way for black artists to engage with American culture in that really chaotic time. So instead of looking at them as kind of in contention, I'm trying to find out what's the underlying sort of ground upon which they agree, you know, and then looking at the ways in which sort of Hayden's Baha'i commitments Resonate, or then don't resonate with some of like the social and aesthetic agendas of like the more militant Black radicals who were prominent in his era. How did he become a Baha'i or How did he hear about it? Do, do you happen to remember? His wife uh, Irma Hayden uh, sort of guided him to the faith. Um, she cultivated her own sort of faith in uh, Ann Arbor uh, in Michigan, and then he, you know, was more uh, let's say Jude. I don't say judicious cautious maybe in his study but eventually he also sort of came to a really a really sort of robust embrace of the faith on all kinds of uh levels you know and, and then it became fully integrated into his art and and life as well but you know being a very private and let's say introspective kind of person he wasn't deeply sort of involved in like Baha'i activities and so forth it was he, he he was more of a artist and sort of his his commitments to the faith are manifest in in this kind of uh, sort of arguably timeless art that he created. Hmm,
0: that's interesting that you know that sparks my thinking because I talk to a lot of Baha'i artists and they're always this kind of figuring out how do I use my art to serve the faith and you know, I'm an artist. I'm not very good at being on committees. I'm not very good at like right, organizing right. a an activity and renting a a rec hall and <laughs> e- creating an email list and and whatnot. And and that that kind of dichotomy that that exists. And I, I think that you know we all have our ways to serve.
1: Yeah, I mean, my feeling on that is. I'm most effective when I'm kind of doing what I really appreciate and really what I really enjoy doing, but also maintaining this kind of commitment to service, right? So I, I think that like the sweet spot is kind of like finding what you're good at and then also um, do, and doing that so that it is of service to the faith, right? I mean, it seems to me that that's the kind of the balance which we should be seeking for, right? Because if you hate doing what you're doing for the faith, then you're not gonna do it well, right? So it seems to me that we have to always be on the lookout for, oh, here's a moment, you know, where, or, or an opportunity for me to really do what I love, but also make that sort of completely in service of the faith, I think
0: that's powerful. But at the same time, you were at the Holy Land uh, mopping <laughs> floors, you know? Right, right. You, you weren't necessarily like writing dissertations or giving talks or lectures or, or writing
1: right right well you
0: know I was young then
1: and it was it was important I think you know to discover things right I mean I had to sort of I had to come into that ownership of the faith myself uh, in a period where um, I wasn't doing what I what was fun or something like that. it was kind of a I think of it um, as a more difficult kind of period but it also afforded me then the opportunity to sort of do the monk, like thing where I sort of sequestered myself and did the reading which was key for me you know did you have any
0: spiritually transformative experiences when you were there at the holy land just going back a a page or two
1: yeah I mean like I I'm not the kind of person like I like for example my wife has dreams all the time and you know my wife has dreams (laughs) too I feel like
0: I had this dream she's like I have these dreams abdul baha came and right I've never had a
1: dream with abdul baha yeah You know? and I'm the same way, so you know my I think my I'm probably too sort of empirical rational, kind of you know minded for for some of that, but um you know I had profound experiences where you know I remember being uh, i would I would pray a lot, like I would go to the shrines and so forth and pray, and you know, I would walk in the gardens and so forth, and I remember one one evening kind of like being behind. Uh, the Shrine of the Bob, walking in the gardens and sort of realizing like, okay, if this is really what I think it is and really what I believe in, then I have to try to make it the totality of my life, you know, and of course, that's very difficult to do. But I mean, I I can remember that specific moment of being in these holy spaces and feeling like, okay, here's a pivot, you know, here's a, here's a, a sign for me, it came to me, that it kind of, I have to sort of try my best to live up to, to the ideals of the faith. So, I mean, that did happen to me while I was over there. Um, let's go back to Robert Hayden a little bit. Um, what's your book about him? Uh, it's called Robert Hayden, Inverse New Histories of African American Poetry and
0: the Black Arts Era. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long title. Subtitle, right. <laughs> you need to catch your title. Like right. Hayden Schmaden or something. I don't know. Right, right. Know. We'll, we'll work on that. Okay. Um, that's great. And can people pick that up out there? Is it available somewhere?
1: Yeah, that's, you know, you can get it online all the University of Michigan Press. You get okay. it from there.
0: Um, it's out there. All right, cool, cool. And um, what else can you tell us about his, his poetry? So uh,
1: his poetry is is uh, complex and layered and very elusive, right? So one of the things that I would say which is so impressive about him is that you can read the poetry for years and then you can discover something that was put there by him that you never even saw before, right? And so, you know, I mean, obviously I read these poems a lot and they sort of unfolded themselves after multiple readings and i'm sure that i still haven't yet sort of really unlocked like all that's there right so he's such a sort of a uh, a sort of master of craft and illusion that the th- these very dense poems sort of are you know to use the simplistic analogy like onions you know there's many layers to them mm-hmm. and you can keep on peeling right and so his his poetry is often known for its engagement with black history with african american history and with the the meaning of america essentially um and so he has a lot of really sort of deeply contemplative poems about the difficulty of coming to terms with evil, you know, in history, Mm -hmm. and also the evilness of American history, Mm -hmm. and this is uh, one of his great, I think, um, contributions, is that he was sort of fully a believer in this ideal that we sometimes are are reminded of in the Baha'i faith, of the great destiny of America as a nation and yet trying to reconcile that with the incredible sort of injustice that we find here. And so he was, you know, always working through these kinds of tensions, right? So this destiny coupled with this reality, which is sort of not living up to the grand ideal of America, both as it's conceived in it of in its own mythology and documents, but also the way that it is... Um, esteemed within the Baha'i faith, you know, as a kind of important uh, nation in the unfolding of the revelation or the destiny of humanity uh, as it conceived through the revelation of Baha'u'llah. So he was interested in that tension, but then also that more fundamental, you could say a fundamental tension of like the individual trying to believe in the possibility of a good universe Mm -hmm. and a... um, a future for humanity that was not defined by contention and oppression trying to reconcile that with this great history of oppression right yeah. so yeah. how do you sort of sit with both of those things at the same time yeah. and the kind and, of and how
0: do how do you how do, <laughs> well, how do you have any do you have any thoughts on this so we here we are in uh, this great american democracy that was founded on blood and uh, just the destruction of countless Native American indigenous tribes and an economy built on a slave trade. Yes, there's a lot of positive things about, you know, democracy and freedom of speech, and there's ways that America broke ground in a lot of ways. But it's such a horrific history that needs to heal. And for America to achieve its great spiritual destiny, as Shoghi Effendi wrote about in Advent of Divine Justice, and Abdullah spoke about, how do, how do we get there? I guess I'm just going to jump right into the deepest possible question.
1: Right. I mean, I think um, that for Hayden, who has taught me so much about sort of understanding this particular dilemma that you articulated, I think, so cogently there, um... First of all, it sort of requires faith that it can be done, right? That we can overcome this history and that we can, achieve, we can arrive at some greater destiny uh, that lives in the future. Um, we have to have faith in that. Um, for Hayden and also for me, I think having that faith is extremely difficult, right? He suffered deeply, sort of emotionally, uh, in his struggle to maintain faith but also live with the difficulty of this history. Um, so I think that first is the recognition of, it's, it's, it's the real difficulty of it. Like to be serious about it is not an easy thing, right? So I think that sort of continual confrontation. I think though that uh, one of the things that I believe and that Hayden has uh, has taught me, I think is like the necessary continual confrontation with the history, right? Uh, and unwillingness to sort of run from it or to turn away from right, it, right? right? Is that w- 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 when we gain, w- we gain wisdom and strength and understanding when we deal um, yeah. with the history? We
0: look at it, we turn to right, it, we right. learn from it, confront it. Yeah, yeah. And confront ways where it continues to manifest today. Right. Because that right. history is not gone, it's not over with.
1: Right. I mean, there's a story that I often tell when I'm, you know, in various things, when I'm dealing with my classes or doing a talk or something um, about this time, I lost my keys and it was really dark outside and I started looking for my keys and I was looking under this lamppost and all these people came to help me look for the keys under the lamppost and then this one woman came up and she said, why are y'all looking for the keys here and I said, well, this is where the light is, so hopefully we can find it here. And she said, well, did you lose your keys here? She, I said, no, lost it out in the darkness out there, but why would we want to look out there? There's no light, you know? <laughs> and so in order to, uh, I use that as an analogy to understand, you know, our sort of dealing with history and being willing to look at it in all of its dark forms in order to really understand how we can shape the keys that we need to open the doors into, you know, a future that is perhaps more justice-filled and unifying than the one that we have now.
0: Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So I read an extraordinary essay that you wrote um, I've read it like three times now. I passed it on to dozens of people. Uh, it's called Centering the Pupil of the Eye Blackness, Modernity, and the Revelation of Baha'u'llah. And this was in the Journal for Baha'i Studies. Uh, really fascinating exploration of this concept of the pupil of the eye. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about it? And I have some more specific questions.
1: Okay. Well, first, thanks a lot for reading it and for passing it along. I really appreciate that. You know, when I was writing uh, the essay, I didn't really think so much about, like, how it might be received by a lot of people. But, uh, you know, a lot of people have really expressed to me that they enjoyed or appreciated the writing, you know. And I hadn't really thought about that so much when I was writing it because I was trying to work out almost for myself, like, a greater sort of personal understanding of this Um, metaphorical concept that Baha'u'llah uses to describe people of African descent and he says Abdu'l-Baha tells us that Baha'u'llah said that black people are like the pupil of the eye through which the light of the spirit shineth forth. And so this is a pretty commonly understood and evoked phrase in Baha'i circles that think about blackness and black people. And so I was always sort of wondering, you know, could I understand this a little bit more uh, deeply? And so what I tried to do is make an argument about... potential interpretations, right? Obviously, you know, these are just my own thoughts and these are some ways that I think um, I was inspired to think by the creative word, right? And so I came up with some historical interpretations of that uh, that I thought would be sort of interesting and, and, you know, perhaps worthwhile for myself and then for other people as well. So do you want me to say a little bit about the argument?
0: Well, yeah, I I, you know, I grew up, as a you know goofy young Baha'i kid in suburban Seattle, and we certainly heard the the pupil of the eye phrase, and you know I always in my head just was like, oh that's that's really sweet, or that's really um, that's really nice that Abdul Baha used this phrase about uh, African Americans considering uh, their you know horrific history in this country, and as I got older, I thought of it even. A little bit deeper, I thought about that phrase as well. That shows that there's maybe a a very special spiritual insight that people of color and African Americans have, maybe due to their heritage, maybe due to the suffering that they've undergone. But what you offer is an even deeper interpretation, uh, which is there's a revolutionary act inherent in Baha'u'llah and Abdu'l-Baha using that phrase in the 19th century, that goes way beyond those two kind of insensitive and reductive kind of interpretations that I kind of had mold over in my little head. Well, I think
1: one of the things that the essay tries to do is really engage with uh, narratives of history, right? So our narratives of history are usually such that we marginalize blackness, right? We sort of um, put the experience of black people at the very periphery of our understanding of particularly Western history and therefore you could say the history of the modern world, right? But in reality, you know, like when we begin to sort of look at the work of really important historians of the last hundred years, particularly you know, black historians in the beginning of the 20th century and now more recently um, historians at the most prestigious institutions of learning in the world, one of the things that's becoming more clear is that blackness was not at all, black people were not at all at the periphery of the making of the modern world. In fact, black people were at the very center of the modern world, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So one of the most, I think, profound kinds of data points to help us understand that is the fact that from 1492 to 1776 right, there were 6.5 million people that came from the old world, meaning Europe and Africa, to the new world, the quote-unquote new world, meaning the Caribbean and the Americas. Now, 5.5 million of those 6.5 million were actually African, right? So this opening up of this new world, which eventually led to the great prosperity of Europe and eventually to America, North America, Um, and to other parts of the modern world was basically made possible through millions of lives that were committed to this work, right? Mm -hmm. Enslaved people who gave everything, you know, of themselves to build this new world, which we enjoy today, all of us, right? Mm -hmm. So in 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 a really profound sense, blackness is at the center of modernity, of the modern world. And so, I kind of thought about the pupil of the eye and the centering work that Baha'u'llah does with that metaphor as an instruction for understanding history. Actually, Baha'u'llah was telling us about the reality of human history and if humanity is like a body, right? There's the body of of humanity. Yeah. At its center is this pupil of this eye, which is one of the most important elements of our uh, corporeal, you know, reality. And Baha'u'llah puts blackness at the center there because I'm thinking that um, blackness was at the center of the modern world, which Baha'u'llah came to sort of revolutionize and transform. And then the other important thing to realize, right, is because of the really um, invaluable role that black people played in kind of building this new modern civilization that we all benefit from today and the way in which they were put to labor in such violent and expropriative means right they were enslaved in you know the most brutal kind of slavery that we know about yeah. in human history Um, There was a way that we had to justify that. Human beings had to justify that. And the justification came through ideologies of anti-blackness, right? The only way that you can really do this to people is if you believe that they are so evil and so soulless and so... uh, Yes, Mm yes that you can sort of justify that, right? And so in the 19th century, the 18th century, the 19th century, when all of this is happening, and uh, Europe and North America is going through this period that is kind of called like the Great Leap Forward or the European, the divergence, the European divergence, right? All that is made possible by this black labor. And so that black People have to be degraded. And so in that 19th century, there's all these intellectuals who are helping to sort of advance this ideology of anti-blackness. And Baha'u'llah comes along and says, in fact, no, it's not at all what you think, right? It's not that black people are, have a lesser station. Right in this human family, but they actually have an elevated station. And I read that as a response to the incredibly destructive and divisive ideology of, of anti-blackness. So if Baha'u'llah's revelation is all about bringing together um, all the world mm. in unity and justice, how on earth is that possible when you have this special segment of humanity which has come in for incredible stigma, Right, Mm. And so Baha'u'llah's special elevation of blackness is a response to and an antidote to anti-blackness, which could only divide us. That's the only thing that it could really do. It could have no role in the world that is imagined and made possible through the system of his revelation. And so inherent to that system, and it's all its kind of grand dimensions, there is this one facet which directly deals with anti-blackness because that precludes the kind of eventual unity that we must achieve.
0: Well, that's, that's the thing, isn't it? That uh, first of all, it's no accident that it's the eye and it's how light comes in the eye and how we perceive the world. So like you said, like the most, maybe the most important part of the body, it allows us to interact with our environment. It's the, it's the discerner that this, you know, if we're a seeking world unity, the black perspective, African-American as well, is not just a good idea or not just kind of like, hey, let's join arm in arm, but it's, it's vital, it's necessary. We can't do it without the black perspective and the African-American perspective. Right. Right.
1: Exactly. You know, we are all human beings. Right. You can't degrade and relegate to a secondary status one segment of humanity if we are going to realize that vision of, you know, human civilization that Baha'u'llah lays out. Right. So the black perspective must be incorporated just as importantly as any other perspective. Right. Not that it is. Uh, a kind of, in my opinion, any more important than any other perspective, right? But it has been historically so degraded and so um, relegated to a secondary status that it must be uplifted. We have to pay special attention to what black people are saying because if we don't, we're going to fall into the traps of anti-blackness which are so fundamental to Western modernity which has become kind of global now. And it's a a subtle point that I'm trying to make, right? Because I believe that, you know, race does not exist. Race is a construction of the human imagination, which was created to divide people and then exploit some people, right? Um, So if we are all, in fact, human beings, right, those of us who are marked by blackness have to be recognized in all of our full humanity, right? And it's almost as though the only way to do that is to swing the pendulum toward a special recognition of black humanity. Yes. Right? Yeah. Because if we don't, we're just going to fall into that wiring which is so essential and fundamental to the building of the modern world, which is an anti-black sort of uh, sentiment and thinking.
0: And it feels to me, these are complicated times. <laughs> yeah. And you look at contemporary society, and especially like Twitter, and everyone's just yelling at each other and amplifying viewpoints that they believe in and shouting down viewpoints they don't believe in. However, it seems to me there's been tremendous progress made in the last, you know, five or ten years, in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, no, but in, because African-American voices seem to be much stronger, and uh, and the white voices supporting them and their allies supporting them, that perspectives are changing, that the African-American point of view about, especially, like, cultural things is much more in the forefront, uh, as far as I can tell now, than it was like 10 years ago. Would you agree? Oh, definitely, right. And
1: and I think that you see that sort of maybe most simplistically, but also starkly, kind of like just in our entertainment, right? I mean, like the black point of view, black people are more central to our films and to our uh, media that we consume today. And I think that that's, you know, a good thing, right? Because what I believe is that it is through kind of like the multiplicity of perspectives and understanding and effort to reconcile this multiplicity of understanding that, that we come to the most kind of beneficial understanding. Yeah, and well, that's unity right?
0: and diversity. So, right. you know, diversity, again, not just a good idea, not just, oh, we can tolerate diversity, but, you know, diversity as a, as a spiritual thing to uphold, to celebrate it, encourage it, bring it on, and know that we're at our strongest as a race, as 7 billion of us on this planet, with maximum diversity and celebration of that diversity. And uh, that's such a key component to the Baha'i faith.
1: Right. And so I think that, you know, our cultural products, our possibilities for living uh, in this world are enhanced, right? When we bring in this black perspective, which has been for so long, you know, so degraded and relegated to marginal status, right? And so I would agree, you know, we are much advanced, you know, from, from where we were only maybe 10 years ago. However, of course, that doesn't sort of negate the real... The work we have yet to right, do. Right, and the incredible fallout that anti-blackness continues to produce yeah, sure. in
0: our, you know, in our world and in America specifically. Yeah. So a lot of our listeners are international and might be thinking right now, well, this is a uniquely American problem. But you see this kind of racism and the prejudice uh, against people of color and, and darker peoples like in every country of the world. So we do a lot of work in Haiti and the the prejudice that the Dominicans have against the Haitians, is some of the most corrosive I've ever seen in my life. It is, it's grotesque and Haitian rights are even Haitians that have lived there for three generations, their rights completely uh, taken away from them. So how can, how can you speak to these issues of, of prejudice and anti-blackness and the healing of that and the pupil of the eye, you know, from a global perspective? hmm
1: well, I mean, I think that there, from what I'm hearing you saying, there's a couple of, um, you know, issues. One is sort of like the sort of the economic regimes under which we sort of live today, right? A kind of what I, and many people call it sort of a neoliberal capitalism, which the great prosperity of the world today is... Not shared very widely, that of course then leads to divisiveness among those who don't have access to that great material wealth that is, I think, part of, that should redound to the benefit of all people in the world. And so that then leads to sort of fragmentation among groups and a kind of Um, animosity between groups, which is then enhanced and sort of justified through these kinds of ideologies of anti-blackness that stem from ideals of white supremacy also. So, for example, the idea of, you know, like in the Dominican Republic where you have this kind of real... Uh, animosity toward people of uh, a darker complexion from Haiti, right? That's because of a sort of valorization and a fetishization of whiteness, right? And so these completely sort of made up categories of race have incredible consequence in that they make people shun blackness, right? And give undue kind of value to whiteness, right? And so that then, that's not just happening here in the US, but particularly as Western culture and then uh, through the conduit of American culture has spread throughout the world, right? We see that happening everywhere, right? Even places where there are no, you know, black people or white people, or very few, like, you know, places in Asia, right, you see that same kind of polarity existing where whiteness is held to be supreme and blackness is highly stigmatized.
0: Yeah, and it's it's also a tribalness and a hatred and a fear of the other, but it often is on kind of this color scale of, of the skin. Right.
1: It's become one of the most potent ways of differentiating ourselves, right? So there is that kind of inherent tribalism or that inherent sort of group in-group favoritism and so forth right and that is something that has always been with humanity but then it gets layered over in ideologies of race which intensify it and of course we know that you know, the most destructive sort of periods in human history have been those driven by the ideology of race, you know, in World War II and Nazism and in the sort of the making of the New World and the destruction of, you know, Native people in the Americas and, you know, in this sort of massive uh, project of enslavement of African people.
0: So what do we do? Let's pretend right now there's some... Nice kind of liberal Baha'is listening and enjoying this conversation, and they're like, "Well, you know, I, I love people of all races, African Americans, all different uh, races, and I'm working uh, to build a, a, a more just world community. But I'm here in my suburb of Pittsburgh or wherever they are. What, what do what do we do? What what more can we do? What more should?" the bahai community be doing what are ways that we can specifically step forward
1: well i mean i think again the 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 best guidelines are given to us In um, Shoghi Effendi, right, and I think it's sort of laid out there in the advent of divine justice, where he basically says that you know, for uh, white people and black people, there are these different ideals to which we must aspire, right, and for white people, it sort of it involves recognizing one's inherent sense of superiority, which Shoghi Effendi says is part of, let's say, the white experience in America, and sort of the you know, white Baha'is have to sort of confront that and be willing to kind of jettison that, leave that behind and always sort of do that inner work which is necessary to recognize when that sense of superiority is at operating, right? Um, black Baha'is, we need to be able to forgive the past. I mean, that's that's such a kind of difficult and um, aspirational ideal, but the ideals of the Baha'i faith are quite aspirational and lofty. And so I think that Baha'is who are black on the one hand must be absolutely sort of conversant and and recognize the history you know that we come out of yet at the same time not hold that against the individual baha'i right any or, or any other individual right and we must be all forgiving i mean that's the that's the aspiration Ooh, that's, of the, that's
0: that's tough I right mean...
1: exactly but this is you know this is like you know, faith, you know, if we, take up, if we think about faith, you know, our faith coming out of Islam and Islam meaning submission, right? I mean, like, this is what we're meant to do. We have to submit to those things which perhaps are most difficult uh, for us to do. And it's only through that kind of deep, deep commitment that I think we're going to make progress. The other thing is to recognize that it's not just interpersonal kind of uh, interactions which are going to be really consequential. Um, it's also the way in which uh, racism has become kind of systematized and embedded in our institutions. And therefore, we have to figure out what institutions are we involved in or adjacent to that we can address, right? How can we kind of address racism as it manifests in the institutions of our society, right? So we need to get involved and then bring these ideals which come out of the faith and which come out of our thinking and understanding of history into the institutions that bear upon our lives. And so I think that that's that's a kind of, you know, you're talking about the suburban, you know, Baha'i outside of Pittsburgh, you know, (laughs) it's like looking at the school district, like looking at the city of Pittsburgh, looking at the way in which law enforcement works there, looking at housing regimes, you know, all that kind of stuff, I think, is where Baha'is need to sort of involve themselves, while at the same time, kind of like engaging with, you know, the core activities and the framework of the, of the plan integrate all that together. I mean, I think that's the very high sort
0: of aspiration that we have. I was uh, listening to this uh, noted writer, Anand Giridharadas, and he was talking about, you know, the best and simplest way to affect social justice uh, immediately in our American world right now is to eliminate education being linked to property values, you know, just immediately. That's something that could happen just right now, we could just go to school districts around the country and not connect property values around the schools to their budgets. And that's one institutional uh, way of changing things. But I think people don't understand that uh, for an African-American to go into a bank, to apply for a job, to go into a police station, to go into a school, you know, to go into a hospital or be treated by a doctor... Like there's a whole different set of standards institutionally, things are set up either you know overtly or covertly or even subliminally to affect uh African Americans negatively. I think a lot of people don't know this. I've just kind of been learning about this over the last couple of years a little bit, yeah, I think right I mean some
1: of the sometime we talk about that experience with institutions of our society as being uh, very much influenced by, you know, biases and implicit biases, which are not really sort of cognizantly uh, held by those who are expressing them, right? Mm -hmm. Because of the deep-seated nature of this kind of anti black ideology, which is also then compounded with anti poor um, ideology. Uh, when people of certain, that are marked by certain sort of markers of race and class status, deal with institutions, they face very difficult circumstances, right? And we know, you know, the statistics around the ways in which black people are simply like not believed when they go to the doctor and they complain of pain, right, that then has these kinds of really negative impacts on health outcomes for black people because their word is not taken as seriously, right? That, addressing those kinds of things, you know, involves training and almost like what we could call like a deprogramming and a kind of commitment to not dealing with people based upon this kind of, let's say, layer, interpretive layer that is so marked by race and class and so forth. So there are various things that have to be done. I don't think my own position is that there is no sort of silver bullet or panacea, right, which we can immediately kind of apply to radically transform society. It involves, it does involve uh, both the transformation of the inner self of every individual that then uh, sort of operates in tandem with that outer social world. And so, yes, on the one hand, we have to sort of, let's say, clear out this kind of inventory of stigmas that are attached to certain people. We have to do that, each one of us ourselves, right? But then we also have to sort of figure out how then to sort of transform the institutions. I just, I mean, my own feeling is that it's not difficult. It's not easy. If it was some quick fix, you know, then we might be able to do it. But there's so many resistances, you know, that, yeah. that, that, that it becomes very difficult. Yet at the same time, right? I mean, I feel like we have to be committed, right? I mean, it's yeah. that sort of same tension, right? It's yeah. like you're, you're a, um, you know, a pessimist of the intellect, but optimist of the will, right? This is the kind of quote from Gramsci, sort of social transformation. Theorists, theorists, right? That's what we have to have. And we have to work through those moments of pessimism with the belief that ultimately things can change. Like we have to have that kind of hope, I believe.
0: And why, why be a Baha'i? Why not just work with Black Lives Matter and social justice movements and the political left? What perspective does the Baha'i faith offer that might enrich or enhance? Those movements that are very strong today
1: I mean I think this is a really sort of is a very profound question uh, it, For me it, it is a very sort of individually Sort of I, I answer it as, as, as completely as an individual right mm-hmm. So it's my belief that Baha'u'llah speaks with divine authority He The revelation of the Baha'i faith The revelation that he brought Is one that integrates all elements of sort of The spiritual and social world in such a way that it can give us the possibility of divine civilization on earth, right? It is a comprehensive, sort of all encompassing system. It's something that doesn't really have parallel in the human realm, right? So Baha'u'llah's ideals for social justice are intertwined with ideals for. Inner transformation, for example, mm, right? Mm. And so I kind of feel that all of these sort of various causes that we have can, n- none of them can be solved individually. What people begin to understand as they become more and more involved in social justice work is that there is this great sort of labyrinth of, there's this labyrinthine network that connects all sorts of institutions and and powers right and so just the moment when you think you've sort of toppled the empire right the empire sort of pops up in another place right i mean <laughs> this is one of the things about sort of social theory of the contemporary world is that power and let's say evil power in particular in particular is very um uh, protein it changes all yeah. the time right and it can always anticipate counter positions right and so just when you think you've Overcome
0: power, right? Hey, we elected Obama. we an African American president. We fixed racism. Hooray. Right. So if our. Guess what? (laughs) Yeah. If our. If
1: our horizon of vision only extends into the next sort of election cycle, we can be sure, okay, you might win that next election cycle, but what about after that, right? Um, There's another great analogy of like, you know, we can be warriors and storm the castle, and then we get into the evil castle and we're into the control room, and then we recognize that the people who are in control have gone, right? They're not there. In fact, there is no control room in the castle, right? Because power is so sort of uh, protean and um, the word I'm looking for is amorphous, I think, right? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. hard to for us with our human, sort of our finite human understanding to figure out how to sort of topple all of these evils. I believe, however, that within the framework of the revelation of Baha'u'llah, we have that one possibility, right? That's why I'm a Baha'i, right? If I, if I, if I didn't believe that, then there's no really reason for me to be a Baha'i. As someone who's committed to changing the world and try to, trying to bring about social transformation, I would choose something else. I would choose another avenue if I didn't mm-hmm. believe that Baha'u'llah's revelation had the real answer and that that answer is kind of like pervasive, it involves so many different elements, right? It's not just one thing that we can do. And so for me, again, speaking very individually, I say I join up my sort of efforts to that of the faith because it's kinda like it's global, right? I mean that's the beautiful thing about the Baha'i Faith, right? Is we can we're we're involved in our little, let's say election of our LSA and our little locality. But on that same day, when we're doing that, there's somebody in Papua New Guinea doing that. There's someone in Angola doing that. There's someone in, you know, Taiwan that's doing that. This of kind- suburban Pittsburgh. And suburban Pittsburgh. Right, exactly. We're all involved in this kind of world transformative, history transforming project. And small as we may be at this moment, my faith is that Someday, you know, our efforts will contribute to that greater transformation. I hope
0: so. So, <laughs> so I could say one thing: like, yeah, I don't, thanks. I
1: don't begrudge anyone who devotes themselves to Black Lives Matter or some um, other sort of socially transformative uh, agenda. However, for myself, right, I try and kind of align these commitments that I have to social justice always with the kind of like the principles and the framework of the Baha'i faith. That, at least that's what I aspire
0: to. Well, I also think that building something is really, really hard. Protesting against something is pretty easy, especially if it's just done on social media. Just like, oh, that's a terrible article. Oh, I can't believe that person said that horrible racist thing. Wah! And even to go out on the streets and not to say that, you know... Look, the history of protestation in our country is, and its link to civil rights is is huge and super important. And things wouldn't have changed if we hadn't had that, you know. Uh, But it's a lot harder to build something and bring people together and sit on a committee and consult and, you know, and love people that you disagree with when you're in a room with tea and cookies with them and, and try and achieve change on a grassroots level Um, And I think some of this uh, you addressed at a recent uh, panel that you were on, Beyond Resistance, Beyond Critique, exploring constructive agency in social movement and critical scholarship that was at the Association of Baha'i Studies. Um, Was that a little bit of the sense of that panel or can you fill us in a little bit on, on what you guys discussed there?
1: Right. I think in that panel, we, there are various people from various disciplines. were are thinking about the concept of constructive resilience, which is one that was advanced by the Universal House of Justice in uh, letters to the Baha'i community in Iran, uh, but which also referenced particularly sort of the African-American experience uh, as being one in which social transformation was brought about through this idea of constructing alternatives to contemporary social formations. So rather than adopting a stance of protest or antagonism, which inherently sort of involves conflict and contention, and usually when we're involved in conflict and contention with an enemy, we ultimately sort of take on many of the attributes of the enemy, right? Instead of Involving ourselves in that kind of effort to create social change, that Baha'is are engaged in constructing something new, right? Constructing something that um, has maybe never been seen before. And as you said, that can be a difficult, arduous, time-consuming Project, thankless, and and it (laughs) It goes on and on, (laughs) requiring so much self-sacrifice. And but it's one that it seems like we as Baha'is are trying to engage in, right? We're trying to build our alternatives that are not organized along the lines of, let's say, social transformation movements that we've seen in the past, right? This is an alt. We are building a new sort of uh, building, if you will that people can come into when all the other buildings have burnt down, right? And I think that there's various ways in which we've done that. And so, for example, like in the African American sort of historical experience, you know, much of the communalism that took place around the church and so forth, right? That was a kind of building of an alternative world and social system through which black people could thrive and survive, you know, in America. One might say that that in Has almost run its course and it's not providing um, African Americans with the kind of sustenance that it did in the past. But for a lot of American history, this is the alternative structure that was built by black people in America. In Iran, we see Baha'is who are terribly sort of persecuted in that nation, sort of not turning, orienting themselves toward their persecutors, but more working on building. Communities that are based upon unity and principles of love and justice and so forth that are sustaining for Mm. those who can enter them, Mm. you know, Mm. and so it moves us away from contention and the resistance model into something that is maybe a little bit more difficult, a little bit more low key right? A little bit more, less flashy, Uh, something that doesn't really provide us with opportunities for heroics and grandstanding and a kind of moral righteousness, right? That may be possible if you're involved in like speaking truth to power, right? That's nice. That builds your adrenaline up, right? I'm speaking truth to power. Like, you know, I'm, I'm taking the people who are evil and I'm showing them what is truth by speaking my reality and that's righteous. That's a beautiful thing, right? But- there's, there's Are other- you saying
0: Baha'is shouldn't speak truth to power? No, no. I'm Unless not saying that, that line between speaking truth to power and being contentious. Or- well, I, I think that
1: there, if speaking truth to power is like your only means of sort of advancing something then that's all you're going to you're going you may speak a lot of truth right but then what right you've got to build something behind that truth right mm. and so i think bahai's are involved in this tandem process right i mean like think we think about history in really sort of narrow terms right we think about history in terms of like the icons right like malcolm x martin luther king like the people at the front of the protest lines and all that right mm-hmm. but You know, like, without the Southern Christian Leadership Council, there is no Martin Luther King. Without the Nation of Islam, right, there's no Malcolm X, right? There are these vast organizational structures that built things which we don't really think about, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that in the Baha'i faith, we are less concerned with the iconography of sort of social transformation than we are with the actual rudiments of building something transformational,
0: right? And you think about the civil rights movement, too. I think about those incredible, the incredible sacrifice of the people of all different skin colors and backgrounds uh, and being parts of the civil rights movement that they did it because they believed in it, Mm -hmm. Um, the selfless service without any glory. Right.
1: The thankless work that nobody remembers done by people whose, you know, names have been lost to history and so forth, right? Like if you think about the, you know, like the bus boycotts and so forth, you know, there was you know, hundreds of black women sort of organizing and making calls to see who was going to take yeah. someone here and there. And, right. you know, oftentimes like the work making that- Making
0: lasagna and bringing it to the people at the churches who are marching that day. Right. It's a lot of times it's
1: the work that women are doing that is, you know, sort of unrecognized and so forth. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, I think that, the, you know, like the Baha'i sort of uh, approach to social change is more akin to that kind of work, you know, that kind of the not flashy sort of but the steady sort of building and commitment to ideals.
0: Yeah. So we have very limited amount of time, but I would love to hear about the work that you're doing in the prison systems because uh it sounds really uh exciting and that's an area where Baha'is I think could definitely they're looking for a way of being of service, like they could might be able to go right into doing some of this kind of work.
1: Mm-hmm. So when I uh, came, I was abroad for some time um, and I came back to the U.S. in about 2011, I think. And, you know, I really wanted to sort of integrate um, my professional life with a kind of work that would be committed to social justice principles that I believed in. And so I thought that engagement with the American prison system uh, would be a good way of doing that. And so what I've done for the past few years since that time in 2011 was, you know, really try to bring what I could into the prison in terms of like my own teaching, right? So for a while I have, when I was in New York, I taught in a, a lot of facilities throughout New York State. Um, and right now, um, I'm also teaching here in California. Um, what do you teach? Well, I teach my sort of usually my my areas of specialty, which are mm-hmm. African American cultural texts. So, for example, this semester I'll teach a class on uh, African American autobiography. Um, what are
0: some of the autobiographies that uh, prisoners respond the most to?
1: Well. Obviously, students on the inside are interested in things like Malcolm X, right? I mean, like, you know, a lot of African-American autobiography sort of takes shape kind of almost like within sort of like the carceral system, right? Mm -hmm. Like people begin to sort of teach themselves and learn within the prison. I mean, Malcolm X is a great model of that. So, of course, the autobiography of Malcolm X is really, you know... Transformative and powerful for people on the inside. I think, you know, Huey Newton's also his autobiography. But then, you know, in my courses, I'm doing a kind of like, you know, his, I look at these things like in really sort of almost clinical ways, you know, so I'm looking at the 19th century and the development of a tradition which starts with the abolitionist slave narratives, right, as a kind of mm. form of an, an, an indigenous American form of autobiography, which sort of black people kind of came up with um, in the effort to overturn the institution of slavery, sort of writing their own stories to demonstrate their own humanity. So, yeah. you know, look at Frederick Douglass, Harriet Jacobs, and then bring it forth in, you know, mm. into the 20th century with people like um, Richard
0: Wright and so forth. That's what I'm mm. doing this semester. Oh, that's, that's great. So, what have you learned uh, from your all of your work in the prison system, and and teaching there, coming back into the United States? And are there ways that Baha'is can get involved?
1: Well, I think one of the you know the main learnings is that you know we have this incredible system of uh, sort of warehousing human beings in really kind of inhumane um, conditions. In America, which has developed over the last, let's say, 40 to 50 years. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. I think that the willingness to undertake what I think of as a kind of unprecedented historical Experiment with human incarceration uh, is really underwritten by ideologies of anti-blackness and so forth, because we 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 tend to think often about you know criminal life and as being black somehow or non-white. Um, that is not sort of maybe. Um, Perfectly sort of reflected in my experience in the prison, you know, for example, I'm in California now and there are a great deal of, you know, Latino and people who I'm working with right now. And so one of the things that I would say in terms of my learning is that, you know, there's so much value and human uh, potential that is being squandered and destroyed basically by this institution. And you see inside like so many people who have possessed all these capacities and these beautiful qualities that we do not associate with kind of like the dark criminal that sort of lurks in the American imagination, right? Right that there's so much value inside, right? Yeah. And so I appreciate my my classes in that. You know, I get to work with some of the the brightest and the most engaged of some of these people who are locked up and there's a lot of excitement in the intellectual exchange that occurs. A lot of intelligence, right? There's another idea, right, that these people are, like, are not smart or only
0: kind of like smart from, mm-hmm. you know. There's a TV show I've been trying to get off the ground for years called Stand Up at Sing Sing. Mm. And we have an in to Sing Sing Prison and doing comedy with prisoners. That's great. So doing yeah. improv, having them work on stand-up sets, bringing special guest stand-up artists out there, and doing a presentation at the end, and it's, boy, we just couldn't get anyone to bite on We had a great presentation, and uh, just, it didn't happen. And one of the, one of the women was very, uh, that we pitched to at some network, she was very uh, straight, and she said, listen, a lot of people, they think that oh, people in prison are bad, and they're evil, and they're unredeemable, and people don't want to watch stories about prisoners, because they imagine, oh, that's probably a rapist or a murderer or, or something like that. So, ugh.
1: Or if they do want to see the stories, because there's a lot of like, you know prison documentary yeah, they, style yeah. thing, right? It's all about, like, this sort of psychotic, dark, you it's know... Dark, how right, dark right, it right. is,
0: and prison violence, and yeah. the hierarchies in the prison system. and
1: You know, when in fact, right, it's the full range of human life which takes place there, and they're, like, in my classrooms inside, and, you know, I mean, I've had some of the best laughs ever, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so, when I talk about, like, you know, prison, like, obviously there is this dimension of it which is super serious, you know, and it's really destroying you know, life, but at the same time time within that institution there's all kinds of comedy you know there's humor and so i love this idea of like you know the humor that can sort of take place uh, inside so but we have very you know f- strong preconceptions about you know what it is that that, that goes on inside and i think in terms of your other question about like what baha'is can do or what people can do right is you know there's so much work that needs to happen around reintegration yeah. you know it, it, thankfully so many places won't em- simply won't employ someone Right, right. They have a record. Yeah. And and thankfully, we're sort of trying to... There's enough recognition, political will to sort of, I think, move in a direction which is lessening the prison population. So more people are coming home, right? But what what opportunity do you have when you go home? You know, your life has been totally upended by involvement with the criminal justice system and being incarcerated. Um, So, you know, there are people who need, you know, work, who need opportunities, who need to be given a chance, right? There has to be opportunities for education also, for people who want to sort of advance themselves. And I think that those kinds of areas of engagement could be really important for uh, Baha'is. Also, you know, Trying to work with kids, you know, before, you know, that
0: they they are incarcerated, yeah. right? You know, trying to work with... With like the foster, foster care system would be a great way to get involved. It's such a broken system. That's a, would be a great way for boys to be of service.
1: And so. also, you know, and the, again, sort of holding law enforcement accountable, right? I mean, sort of really thinking about the way that we... And these are not easy questions, but thinking about the way that we try to maintain sort of law and order, you know, I mean, it's we can exert wills in our community, you know, to make sure that certain processes don't happen, which have led to the explosion of this kind of, as I said, social experiment, which is devastating, you know, to our society, I
0: think. Derek Smith, Dr. Derek Smith, uh, this has been such a profound pleasure speaking with you. I've gained so much knowledge and insight and I love your perspective and uh, I'm so excited to, to share this podcast with the world and for people to get to know your work. Is there other places that people can find where you've written and what you've written? I mean, other than just a Google search.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, as I said, my, you know, my work is here and there, you know, I try to put it out uh, on the internet in various places. I'm not like a big internet person. Like I'm not that guy on Twitter, you know, like I don't even really use the social media and so forth. So... It's there. I'm working on a book right now on, oh, on the, the rapper Rakim, right? Okay. And so the developments in hip-hop that occur, you know, uh, through sort of his innovations, I think, in, in, in hip-hop poetics, I think I'm... Uh, Hopefully, in a couple in a couple of years, that book will be out, so you can watch out for that. You know,
0: oh fantastic! <laughs> but I really appreciate you know you having me here. I appreciate that a lot. Right oh, now. the pleasure is mine. Really, thank you so much. Thanks for your time, and thanks for driving all the way. Oh, no, no, thanks a Dora lot. Hills, California. My <laughs> honor, my honor. <laughs> okay, thanks. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iBlog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.